thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are on your throne. You're not surprised by coronavirus. You are large and in charge. And Lord, as we, uh, yeah, as we worship you, we just thank you. And we just take a moment to acknowledge who you are. You are faithful. You have always been faithful. You always will be faithful. And so, Lord, as we gather today, I pray that you would just sow that seed deep within us, that you would lay again that foundation, remind us of who you are, remind us of who we are in you, how loved we are. Your promises are so good. They are precious and they will never fail. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So welcome along. It's, uh, it's wonderful to have you here. My name is Dave, and I am part of the team here at Hills, and it is great to have you join us today. I had absolutely no idea what it was going to be like when I rocked up to church this morning with everything that's happened in our world, particularly in the last 48 hours. People are cancelling everything. They even cancelled the tennis finals yesterday, which had about 20 kids in it and uh, because of coronavirus. Um, Before we begin and before we say anything else, it it is worth just taking a moment to acknowledge that with everything that's happening in our world, there is a chance that this is the last Sunday that we're going to be able to meet together for a little bit. Uh, There is a real, I'm praying it's not, but there is a very real chance that may happen. Uh, And if that happens, we just ask that you sign up to the email, that you get on board the Facebook, because we might not gather like this, but we're not going to stop being community. We're not going to stop praying. We're not going to stop getting in groups and worshipping and hearing the Word of God. Amen? Um, So God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so that is how we are going to live. Um, We're going to be vigilant, but we're going to be filled with faith. Amen? And uh, for everyone online right now, all our brothers and sisters who are joining us from home, we say welcome to you too. And uh, yeah, we're glad you can be here. So we're in a series, we started a series last week on the wisdom literature. And uh, we, we took a moment to unpack this idea of what is wisdom. We took a moment to have a look at Um, how do we find wisdom and how do these books work together? And we said, so often when we look at um, Scripture, when we look at Proverbs and we look at Ecclesiastes or Job or these books, so often we just read them in isolation, but actually that's not what they've been written for. That's not how they've been put together in Scripture. We are supposed to read these books collectively. We're supposed to see them as one in that together, when we, when we put them together, we find what wisdom is. And that wisdom is not to be found just in isolation, but actually in the collection of these books together, we begin to get a grasp of this idea of wisdom. And we defined wisdom. We had a crack at defining what wisdom is, uh, that it is the knowledge, insight and courage to surrender to the supremacy of Christ, no matter the cost in all things. That is what we're called to do. Um, Today, we come to an interesting topic given 
the last 48 hours, and that is the topic of suffering. The wisdom of God in suffering. Uh, And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge uh, I've taken great encouragement this past week from Paul, Paul's exhortations in 1 Corinthians, when he says, I came to you, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I received to you, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time again. My prayer as I've been prepping this and studying this and as we've been getting ready to come around this wisdom for suffering is that we would get God's wisdom, not David's. Because when I look around this room, I can see faces and I know in my life, I have not suffered as you have suffered. I know what it is to sit in a hospital room wondering where the heck God is week after week. But I haven't lost a child to cancer. I haven't lost a partner to an accident or disease. And some of you in this room have. So praise God that I don't need to come to you with my wisdom. But we come around God's word and we come around God's wisdom. And God will speak. So today's going to be somewhat heavy. (laughs) We'll try and laugh a little bit. But God has a word that he wants to speak to us in this season around suffering. And where he is, what is his wisdom in the midst of all of this. So before we do it, let's pray and let's get stuck into his word. Father, as it says in Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Lord, we come not to be entertained today. We just want to lay that down. We want to lay our consumer spirit down and we come instead to be encouraged. We come humbly to your throne of grace, Lord. God, we ask that you would grant us your wisdom to help us in our time of need. Speak, Lord. Lord, draw back the frosted veil of eternity. Light our eyes with the wisdom that is found hidden in the halls of faith. Sit us at your cross that we might find somehow peace and meaning in the mess. Hope in the heartache. God, tune our ears to your cry and our eyes to your vision. Show us wisdom. Lord, may we carry our cross by the power of the Spirit and in the great and glorious hope that our crucified, suffering Saviour is also the resurrected, risen, great, glorious, powerful, soon-coming King who is making all things new. Help us and hold us, Lord, as we gather today. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. Um, so in my teaching days, which is now a while ago, I always had the, I had the pleasure and the privilege of, of speaking to um, senior school Christian studies classes every year. I was, I was signed on as a PE science person, but I had the joy of being allocated a year 11 or a year 12 class pretty well every year that I taught. And um, we had a lot of fun in those lessons. I have this vivid memory of one lesson uh, where a year nine math teacher walked in after my lesson, poked his head and said, well, that was an interesting conversation, wasn't it? So it turns out year nine extension maths also got the passionate (laughs) proclamation uh, that relativizing truth is stupid. Um, We had a lot of good times. Uh, One of the things that I love to do in those classes is I had this thing which uh, I called the little box of big questions. Uh, And that came, that that was good. There was this chance basically for kids throughout the year, they could write a question that they had and put it in the box. And when we had time at any point along the way, we might open it up and have a chat. Um, But that came out of a really interesting, difficult time. I think it was like my first or second year of teaching. I was very green, very raw, needed a lot of wisdom from a lot of people. Uh, and I walked into a year 11, second semester, year 11 Christian studies class. I'd never met these kids before. And I'll never forget, if you've ever walked into a room, I literally opened the door and stepped in and you could feel the animosity. Have you ever been in a situation like that? You could feel the tension, almost the hatred, I would say. And I walked in, I was like, whoa, there is something in this atmosphere that is just full on. And so I tried to teach, we were teaching on temple worship, the pattern of temple worship. And uh, I just remember thinking, this is intense, like, they're giving me nothing. And not only are they not giving me anything, there was this real push, it was a battle every time I walked in there. I was like, this is not how my classes normally go, I'm a fun-loving guy, like, I'm relatable, we get along well, what's going on, why do they hate me so much, why do they hate me? And uh, I remember seeking the wisdom of a a friend, um, the head of our faculty, and uh, he was a great mentor to me, and he basically, I said, what's going on? And he sort of encouraged me around the fact that there's a spiritual battle in these things, we need to be praying, and he also said something that was very wise, he said, well, why don't you ask them? (laughs) (laughs) Not in a way that's, you know, going to cause a huge blue in class, but why don't you use your brain and come up with a creative idea, a creative way of finding out what's going on and thus was birthed the idea of the little box of big questions so we had this little box and these kids put these questions in and I'll never ever ever forget opening up that box at home I didn't do the first one in the class but I just opened up at home to see what was coming my way and all of a sudden everything made sense and as fate would have it as I prepared this sermon I went back through the archives because I have the external hard drive And because I didn't want them on paper, I threw them in. I actually typed them up and I found some. And I'm going to read you some. And as I read them, you're going to see what I saw. How can you be so sure God exists? When I look at the world, it seems to me like a loving, all-powerful God would not allow so much pain. Why do bad things happen to good people? This next one's my favourite. If God existed, then he wouldn't suck so much. (laughs) Well, that's not a question. (laughs) That's a statement. 
Why would a God of love allow people all over the world to starve and suffer while the lucky few enjoy peace and prosperity? If that's God, I don't want him. And the last one. My best friend got killed when his dad accidentally reversed over him. Where is your God in that? Turns out, these kids, a few years before I had got there, had lost a very dear friend in a very tragic accident. And guess what? They were angry. And I was trying to teach them the pattern of temple worship. (laughs) which they were not interested in hearing. And that's why there was this incredible backlash, this incredible tension. They were angry. They were mad. They had questions that they need to ask God that they didn't even know that they needed to ask or know how to ask them. And so I read those questions. I remember coming back into that next lesson, uh, again with some wise advice from a friend, and just said, uh, I just apologised. And I said, I'm so sorry that I didn't actually take the time to understand where you were at. I'm sorry that I wasn't aware of your situation. I should have been. Instead, I just thought I'd come in here with charisma and win you over. And so I apologised and I said, do you know what? I don't have all the answers. And I may never have all the answers. In fact, I will never have all the answers. But... If you are willing, I will join you in the struggle. And if you are willing, I will sit with you and we will wrestle this together. We will seek the wisdom of God in the midst of all of this. And let's just see what he says. And guess what happened? Not all those kids got converted. It wasn't like there was this amazing, oh, all of a sudden everything's better. It was still a journey. It was still a battle. But I can promise you that as that semester went on, those doors opened. And what was animosity and hatred and her all of a sudden became an openness to conversation. I would even say an eagerness to learn. We started laughing together. We probably cried together. But here's the one thing I do know, that in the midst of that semester, as we wrestled with the wisdom of God and the place of suffering in the world, along with teaching temple worship, because you still got to get through your stuff, a peace came to that classroom. A genuine peace came to that classroom that didn't exist the day I walked in. Why did a peace come? And I think the peace comes because when you seek the wisdom of God and you surrender to the supremacy of Christ in all things, no matter the cost, we find wisdom and where there is wisdom, there is peace. Proverbs chapter 3 says this, happy is the one who finds wisdom, her ways are pleasant and her paths peaceful. There's something about wisdom That brings peace. There's something about resting in the wisdom of God where despite not having the answers, I did not have all the answers. I do not have all the answers. When we talk about suffering, there is, we're going to look at this in a minute, there is stuff that we will not be able to grasp with our human minds. However, 
the great and powerful promise of the wisdom literature is that in spite of that, we can know peace. We can know peace and we can know security. Because this is what the wisdom books are teaching us. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a quick look at what are the wisdom books saying in the area of suffering? What are the wisdom books teaching us when it comes to dealing with suffering in terms of the nature of suffering, in terms of the nature of God interacting with humanity and human suffering? Where is he in it all? Because guess what? The wisdom books ask this in a phenomenally powerful way. Yeah? And as you read the wisdom books in their context, you will find incredible answers. Because as we said last week, you've got Proverbs. And when we look at Proverbs, in all, her, in all her wonderful wisdom, she gives us this generalized view of the world. She gives us this understanding of cause and effect. She basically tells us that God has created the world with a moral law. There is a moral way that things happen. I call it the tennis ball effect. When you bounce that tennis ball on the ground, what does it do? It bounces straight back up. Cause and effect. And this is what Proverbs teaches. If you do good, if you do right, if you honor God and you behave with wisdom, then you will receive good things. You will be blessed. However, if you do bad things, if you uh, go against the wisdom of creation, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that the way, uh, the wisdom, sorry, not of the world, the wisdom of the way that God has made the world, then if you fight against that, then you're going to suffer as a result of that. And so Proverbs teaches us this beautiful, broad picture. However, we then come to Ecclesiastes. You remember we talk about Ecclesiastes, the critic. Ecclesiastes is like, well, hang on, Proverbs. I've seen that. That's true. But I've also seen both the righteous and the wicked perish under the sun. And he says, I've also seen both the righteous and the wicked thrive under the sun. He's like, what's with that? And then he goes, it's meaningless. It's all meaningless. It's, no, it's nonsense. And then he comes to a better place at the end, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks. And Ecclesiastes is basically going back and forth with Proverbs a little bit, saying, well, you say that there's this moral law, but I don't always see that moral law out working in the world. And then you come to Job, and Job's just like, uh-huh. I hear you. And yet, he has a peace about him. He sits there. I just love to picture Job as this old, regal man who's just sitting there like, I've been through it all. And I am totally at peace. And Proverbs, you're right. And Ecclesiastes, you're right. And then he just goes, let me tell you my story. <laughs> and then you start having this conversation with Job. And so when we look at the wisdom books, we see this happening. We see that there is a suffering in the world that we can understand. Yeah, We see the Proverbs idea of suffering. Like Proverbs 13.20, fools suffer harm. Proverbs 19.50, the lazy people will become hungry. Proverbs 6.32, adulterers will reap bad consequences. Proverbs 11.8, the righteous person is rescued from trouble and it falls on the wicked instead. Proverbs 13.9, the light of the righteous shines brightly but the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. There is a suffering in the world that makes sense. And if we want to go outside the wisdom literature, we just go to Genesis and we look at the fall. We look at the fact that so much suffering is, is now self-inflicted. 
Like I've had this conversation with so many people where they're like, well, you know, I can't believe in God because there's suffering. And I'm like, well, take God out of the picture. Is there still suffering? The answer is yes. There is still, if you remove God, guess what? People still hurt each other. I had a friend the other day who, with the whole coronavirus thing, she's sick, her kids are sick, she's walking through the shops with toilet paper because she genuinely needed toilet paper, and someone come and just took the toilet paper out of her trolley and ran off. And now she's suffering because she has no toilet paper. You see, there is a suffering. Now, that's not God's fault. God didn't do that. God didn't go, well, Katie, I'm going to nick your, your dunny paper. No. That's just people being broken human beings. Like we hurt each other. Parents abuse children and children grow up to abuse children. And those children grow up to abuse children. That is not God's fault. That is people. We hurt each other over and over and over again. There is a suffering that makes sense, and it's part of the brokenness of humanity. It's part of the brokenness of the fact that we've rejected God, and because we've rejected God and we've made ourselves God, we've made ourselves king, and if we worship ourselves, that is called selfishness, and when we are selfish, people starve. How many times, and I'm guilty, I'm putting my hand up, how many times have I tipped a plate of food in the bin? How many times have we had an abundance and an excess in the West when there are people dying of starvation all over the world? There is a brokenness in our world and we cause so much of it. And we could talk about, uh, we could talk about the curse of the earth. We could talk about the fact that all creation groans are eagerly anticipating the redemption of all things. We could talk about the fact that pain exists to show us that something is broken. When you break your arm, if you had no pain, you'd just be like, oh, yeah, no worries, mate, and you'd keep going on. But guess what? There's something wrong. Pain in the world, pain in creation, the fact that we have horrendous things, earthquakes, tsunamis, the fact that we see this mass, terrible suffering because creation is broken. It is supposed to point us to the need for redemption. We are supposed to see the brokenness of the world and say, yes, that is the result of a curse because of our choice to reject God. And in that curse, we are longing for redemption. We are longing for it to be made right. There is a suffering that makes sense. And we see it in the wisdom literature. We see it all through scripture. But there is also a suffering that is beyond us. And this is what the wisdom literature unpacks perhaps more so than any other part of scripture. There is a suffering that we just cannot grasp and God in his wisdom guess what doesn't even try to explain it it's fascinating 
This book of Job is fascinating. Don't get me wrong, he gives us insights. Like throughout Scripture, we have insights. That we could go to 2 Corinthians 1, Paul's glorious exhortation around his suffering and the famous so that's, talking about I've suffered so that I might be able to comfort you in your suffering. There's this sense that we suffer so that we can actually uh, empathize and relate to someone else. If you've ever tried to empathize with someone in a, in a bad situation, but you've not been through it yourself, there's a disconnect. But I have seen in this church, I have seen people down here weeping and crying in a way that I cannot engage with them. And someone else who's been through or going through what they're going through comes up, wraps their arm around and they fall on their knees and they pray. And all of a sudden there is a comfort. Parakaleo is the word. It's a great Greek word. And it's the God of all comfort. God comforts in that place. Are you with me? There's the so that, there's the so that we might learn to depend on God, that we might learn that we have to trust him, that he is, again, he is above us. We can't fix ourselves. We can't fix the situation. So we have to depend on God so that we might depend. And there's even a so that in that glorious passage that we might give thanks to God that we might get to a point where we thank him for the very thing, one that he brought us through because in the bringing us through, he has refined us in a way that we could never have been refined if we had not gone through it. Because God desires to grow us in righteousness and in his likeness. So there is a glimpse, there is a glimpse of this suffering, what it's about, but goodness me, that's all it is. And Job is this incredible book. Can I explain Job to you for a minute? Job is this fascinating, fascinating book. Do you know Job, scholars disagree on when it was written. Some say that it was the earliest book ever written. Others say that actually it's more of a a parable. They say that it's more written uh, around the, the time of the kings. So there's differences of opinion. But what we do know for sure is that Job is one of the most eloquent eloquent, detailed, incredible books that you will find in, not just in the Bible, but in any ancient text anywhere. There's words, Hebrew words in the book of Job that you will not find anywhere. Like it's someone writing fancy. And when someone's writing fancy, they're usually writing fancy for a reason. Yeah? There's an artistic, creative poetic genius to the book of Job. And basically what we see in the book of Job, it starts the first couple of chapters with this really interesting saying. It says, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. And basically this is the biblical way of saying it, a long time ago in a land far, far away, there once lived a man named Job. Uz is this place that's just a long way away. Job isn't Jewish. None of his friends are Jewish. It's just a long time ago in a land far, far away. And then it sets this really interesting, incredible scene of the courts of heaven and God sitting in his council and decisions being made. And uh, as he's there with what is called the sons of God, which we interpret the angels, this character in Hebrew called the Satan which we translate just to Satan, but actually that's not necessarily the right translation. It's actually the one who is opposed. 
comes and basically starts saying, hey, I've been roaming around the earth. And God's like, have you seen Job? And he's like, yeah, but you, you've put a hedge around him. And so then there's this whole conversation, which we don't have time to talk about, which basically leads to God granting the Satan permission to inflict suffering on his servant. And then you see from chapter 3, Oh, to 38, just this incredible poetic conversation. And basically what we have is Job's three friends rock up, and apparently a fourth because we find out that later, but three friends rock up and they see Job suffering and they sit with him for seven days and they say nothing. And then Job speaks and he does this elaborate curse on his own on the day that he was born, basically. He curses the day he was born. And then it goes this interesting pattern of one friend speaking and then Job responding. And then one, another friend speaking and Job responding. Then the third friend speaking and then Job responding. And that happens two and a half times. And in the middle of it all, in chapter 28, the author, it's like he pauses Job. And he interjects. If you get a chance to read chapter 28, do it. And he just pauses and he interjects with this incredible chapter defining wisdom and saying, where is wisdom found? And basically what he's doing is he's taking us out of the story and going, hey, remember, this is a story about wisdom in the midst of suffering. And he says, hey, wisdom is not easily found. He's like the birds of the air, they can't even fly down. Even the miners who are looking for gold and digging to the depths of the earth, they can't find it. It's only found in God. And then he takes himself back out and Job continues talking. And then his other, this young friend, Elihu, Elihu, comes along and he does the best monologue in all of Scripture. Six chapters. And the whole first chapter is basically him talking about how nervous he is about the fact that he's going to start talking. <laughs> and he starts, like, mic dropping all over the friends about the nature of wisdom and how they were wrong and how Job's wrong. And then when he finishes, God gets up. And genuinely, mic drops. And God takes Job on this virtual tour of the universe. And basically just says to him, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Can you measure that out? Can you understand this? Can you do that? And basically what he's saying, I am so far above and beyond you. It's time to get a heart of wisdom. It's a fascinating book and it's got some really interesting things to say about this nature of suffering. And the first thing that we see is that, which I think is, is something that God really just impressed upon my heart, is that actually that wisdom which is going to bring peace is found simply and firstly in presence. Because I think the friends get it right to start with. The friends rock up to Job, we'll read it together, they rock up to Job, who is in deep, deep suffering. He's lost, his, he's lost his children. He's lost his wealth. He's lost everything. Everything. And then from chapter 2, verse 11, when Job's three friends, Eliaphaz, Bildad, and Zephar, heard about the troubles that had come upon Job, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him 
and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word. I think sometimes when it comes to suffering, we need to understand that just maybe God is calling us when we are wanting to bring comfort that we need to shut up. We have two ears and one mouth. And so often, and I am like pointing at myself, everything within us wants to just explain what's going on. We want to come in there and go, oh, well, it's because of this, and it's because of this, and it's because of that. Oh, it's because of the fall. We want to just give reason. We want to solve the problem. We want to sit down and help them understand, especially when they're angry, especially when they're yelling at God and saying, this isn't fair. What's going on? We say, oh, don't say that about God. God... And actually, I think sometimes the greatest wisdom is found not in explaining and not in trying to justify it. God's big enough to look after himself. Maybe he's just calling us to go and sit in the dust. To learn to just be present in the mess. To not talk, but to love. To wrap our arms around them and be And as we be, as we are with them in the middle of everything that's going on, just maybe they understand something of the promise of God that I am with you to the very ends of the age. That he's with us. And Job's friends did this, but then they, you know, Job started talking. They're like, oh, we've got to start fighting back. And then the wheels start to fall off. So I think there's wisdom in that. I think there's wisdom in presence, yeah? And then I think the second thing that we begin to see in this is that there's, that there's wisdom, there's peace that comes in perspective. There's peace that comes in perspective. Let me explain. The whole conversation, the whole dialogue between Job and his friends revolves around this triangle. Can we put that up? So what we, we think that Job is, is a book that's going to explain the why of suffering. It's not. It doesn't. What it is, is a dialogue around God's justice, Job's innocence, and the way God outworks his justice in the world. Yeah? So Job's friends come along, and can you all see that? And in Job's friends, they say, well, God's nature is that he is just and he is wise. And because he is just, and because he is wise, because he is perfect, he will always govern the earth, on that bottom right-hand corner, He will always govern the earth in a particular way, the way that we've seen in Proverbs, the tennis ball effect. It is called just retribution. Someone say just retribution. It means that he'll bless the righteous and punish the wicked. And Job's friends have these two fundamental things in their mind. God is just. He governs through just retribution. He will always do what is right according to my understanding of right and wrong, according to my understanding of what is just, And therefore, Job must not be innocent. Because if God is just, and if he governs the world with just retribution, then Job must have done something wrong. And it's fascinating. They start making up stories. They're like, well, maybe you went and stole the clothes of someone else when they were sleeping so you could be warm. Like they just start saying all this stuff about Job. Like, are you sure you haven't, like, are you sure that you are righteous in all of this and Job's thing is God is just 
I know God's just to start with. And then he says, and I'm innocent. I'm righteous in all of this. I have not done anything wrong. For goodness sakes, I've even done sacrifices for my children when they had a party just in case they sinned. I'm innocent. And therefore, God does not govern the world in that way. And then as you keep reading, he flips and he says, okay, I'm innocent. Maybe you're right. Maybe God does govern the world with just retribution, which means God's not just. And as you read the end of the book of Job, he's an angry man now. He's like, you're not just. And if I could just have a meeting with you, if I could just get you in the courtrooms of heaven, if I could just plead my case with you, I will be found to be true in all of this and you will be found to be wrong. And it's this fascinating conversation. And then when we get to the end and God shows up and God starts to speak, what God does is say, I am just. You are innocent. And I don't govern the world in the way that you perceive me to govern it. I govern it with wisdom. He changes the narrative from just retribution to godly wisdom. He says, I govern it with hokmah, that word that we learned last week. Everyone say hokmah. He says, I govern the world with wisdom. And Job, this wisdom is above you. This wisdom is beyond you. You can access the wisdom of the world, but there is a higher order of wisdom. So he takes him on the virtual tour of the universe. Where were you? Let's read. Oh, it's so good. Let's read that little part as God starts to unwind on Job. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know, Job. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstones while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? And on and on and on God goes with Job saying, I'm above you. I am on the throne. I am in control. But the complexity of the world that I govern is so much more intricate than you can ever imagine. If I was to treat every human being with just retribution, guess what? There would not be a single human being left on the planet. So my wisdom is above you. That doesn't mean I've lost control. It doesn't mean I don't know what's going on. It doesn't mean that coronavirus has surprised me. It doesn't mean that I, have, I am anxious. No, I am in control. I understand the way things are going, but it just doesn't look the way that you think it should look. I think this... I was thinking of an analogy for this, for us. And what it, 
how can we how can we understand this? I was thinking about surgery. Imagine a, a father who's a surgeon, and he has this rule, he has this moral law, he has this wise way of living in the world, and he says to his three-year-old son, never hurt someone. You know, don't inflict injury upon someone. And so the kid has this idea, okay, that's, that's a rule that I need to live by. I need to be good to people. I can't hurt people. I need to love people and care for people. And this is what it's going to look like. I'm never going to lay a hand on anyone. And then one day that three-year-old son happens I don't know how this part of the analogy is falling down, but he happens to walk in one day through a door and there's his dad, dressed up, scalpel in hand, people everywhere, a person unconscious on a bed, dad literally cutting someone open and the kid's like, what are you doing? You said don't do that. And in the kid's understanding, the finite understanding, he's hurting someone. You can't live that way. We had a rule. There is a moral law. You don't do that to someone else. And the dad, with his gear on, scalpel in hand, person on the bed, doesn't have the time to say, well, actually, son, let me explain to you the, 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 the intricacy and the complexity of the situation that we're in. What the dad is asking the son to do is just trust him that he's good. And that he understands what he's doing, even though it looks to the son like things are out of control. Are you with me? Our God is the great physician. And sometimes our God has to take the scalpel out. And we sit there and go, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Can't you see I'm hurting? Can't you see I'm broken? Can't you see what's going on in my life? And this is what Job's doing. And God is just sitting there saying, I have it under control. I am still on my throne. And the speech that he gives to Job, what we see in the wisdom literature as we look at it, its entirety is giving us this glorious picture of perspective. And when Job hears God unleash All of this, look what happens to him in chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears heard of you, but now my eyes have seen, therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Something in Job has changed. And it has changed because of a different perspective. And I came today to tell someone in this room who was going through suffering, look at the cross. Get a different perspective. As a church, we want to sit with you in the mess. But please know that God is good, 
that he is for you and he is not against you. And in your confusion, God, by his wisdom and his grace, has given us a not just a sign but a historical reality that has split time, that for all time and for every person that we can look at and we can see a blood-stained cross that says, I know, I understand Get perspective. Even before the world was created, I had ordained it so that my son would suffer for the sins of humanity. That in your suffering, you would know that you are not alone. That we do not have a high priest who is unfamiliar with our pain, who is unfamiliar with our suffering. No, God in his wisdom suffered. In Christ, for us, that we would be wise, that we would know just a glimpse of the picture of heaven. And finally, as I close and band, you can come up and then we're going to finish. But the final thing that we see in this, when we have perspective, that perspective we need to know that wisdom will lead us to the right posture. How does Job finish? I repent in dust and ashes. Last week, we defined wisdom as surrendering to the supremacy of Christ in all things. Job comes to a profound and deep place of humility. He never, God never once tells him why. As a reader, we have a window in chapters in chapter 1, which is difficult to explain and understand, and we can talk about it another time. Job never once knows why. God never answers him. God never sits him down and says, well, let me tell you what's going on. No, all he does is he gives him the perspective of his glorious, incredible, wondrous nature, and in so doing says, trust me. And for Job, that revelation of who God is causes him to do this. And what we see in Job now is a peace that he did not have before. What we see in Job now is an assurance that he did not have before. Through all of the mess, Job comes to this profound incredible place of trusting in the Lord and my hope and prayer for us in suffering, in the midst of suffering is that as a church we sit with each other in the mess as a church we, we don't necessarily try and explain everything even though we feel like we might be able to but we actually just point to Christ, we actually just point to the greatness the majesty and the wonder of our God. We point to the cross that splits time. We point to a God who's not unfamiliar with our suffering. We point to this God who came for humanity. We point to this resurrected, soon coming King who will make all things new. We point to the great and mighty promises of God and we declare that in that perspective, we can trust, we can hope, we can endure because He is faithful. 
He's faithful to the very end. And it is not a false hope. It is not just random sayings. It is evidenced. It is reality. It is true. It is fixed in stone. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for the sins of the world, was raised from the dead, is ascended on high, sent His Spirit to establish and empower His church to be His hands, feet and mouthpiece in the world. That is a fact. Look around you. The church isn't a great human idea. It is God's idea. It is God's wisdom. Even though there are times when we might say, that's silly. Why would you choose your people to be your vessel? We're fallen. We're prone to foolishness and selfishness. We're prone to wandering. We're prone to causing and inflicting suffering on others. And just maybe there is a wisdom in that too. God's wisdom for suffering is that we might surrender to the supremacy of Christ in all things, no matter the cost, knowing that He is for us and not against us. And even when we're searching for the why, we can trust in the what, the what that He has done. that He has set aside and He has achieved for us. Would you stand to your feet? Let's pray. Father God, we are but the dust of the earth, the flowers of the field, here today and gone tomorrow. You are the eternal, glorious maker of heaven and earth. Father, I pray today that you would give us a fresh perspective in suffering. God, that we would know that we don't always have to try and explain it away. Give us the wisdom to know when to speak. When is the right time to share the things that you have taught us and the things we know about the nature of suffering and the brokenness of this world. And give us the wisdom to know when just to sit in the mess. And as we sit in the mess, may we get perspective. 
And Father, for everyone here right now who is enduring great suffering, I pray that as they leave, their takeaway would be that God is good, that God is faithful, that God is true, but that God's ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. God, you are above us, you are beyond us, but you are on your throne. You still rule. You are still sovereign and you always will be. And we thank you and we praise you that you have not left us without witness. And so I pray that as we gain that perspective, that we would come with the posture of humility because that is where true wisdom is found. And as we have that posture of humility, that we would find peace that passes all understanding. A peace that right now we may not know, we are struggling, we are wrestling with, but as we come to the cross, as we kneel before the cross, as we humble ourselves before the great and glorious God who gave His Son to set us free. And as we sit right there in that posture of humility, that that is what we would have. We would have a deep, profound, glorious sense of peace. And know that you are working all things together for the good for those who love you. And a day will come like Job when we sit on the other side of it. And maybe that's in the the courts of heaven themselves. Or maybe that's on this earth. But as we sit there, that we would then have the so that's that Paul talked about the ability to encourage, the dependence on you and a heart of thankfulness. So we love you, Lord. We praise you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are gonna sing a song called God is Good because that's what he is. And I wanna encourage you wherever you are at and whatever you're going through to sing this from the depths of your heart because God is good. And if you need prayer, if you want some encouragement, if you want someone to come and sit with you in the mess for a bit, please do that. Please come. We'll stand over there and over there. And we can pray together and we can cry out to God together and we can thank God for His goodness in the midst of everything that's going on in your life. So let's do that now. Let's take a moment just to respond. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.